Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Bothell Amplified. Pastor Joe here. Uh, I'm excited that we're continuing on in this sermon series called In. Uh, today we uh, explore some of the impact uh, that may come from being called in or from calling one another in. Uh, we draw from uh, Colossians chapter 1 verses uh, 15 to 29 and we challenge ourselves uh, to be against empire and to become, uh, in Paul's words, servants of the gospel. Uh, check out the sermon here. Good morning church. My name is Jennifer Payne. In our third part of the four-week series called in, we read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 28. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a minister of this gospel. I am now rejoicing in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I became its minister according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations but has been now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he who we now proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. God's word for God's people. All right, good morning again. Uh, Welcome to Bothell United Methodist Church. We're located on the traditional grounds of the Duwamish, Coast Salish, and Stiligwamish peoples, and we're glad you're joining us here uh, on site and online. Um, This week, I I started going uh, back to Starbucks regularly. Uh, Some of you know that uh, uh, pre-pandemic, all that, uh, Starbucks was a favorite place of mine, uh, not for the coffee necessarily, but for uh, the time to sit, to read, to be in community. And I went to my usual Starbucks, um, and uh, I walked in, and uh, there's a guy that I um, knew. I don't, didn't know his name, but, you know, we've seen each other enough that we knew of him. So I walked in, I gave the kind of, hey, how's it going? And he kind of gave the nod back. And when I uh, went to order my drink, um, it's a soy latte, if anyone's wondering. Um, (laughs) 
that's my drink. Uh, I started coming back, and I noticed him uh, sitting with another person, kind of pointing and kind of like whispering, right, like at me, like, oh, there's something over there. And I wanted to be really cool about it and really chill about it, so I got my drink, and I walked over. I was like, hey, so it's great to see you. Small talk, small talk. Why are you talking about me, right? And, and so we were talking, and he said, you're, you're, you're wearing a different shirt today. Um, I didn't know what to do with that. It, it, it's a nice polo. It's, it's a great shirt, but I uh, didn't know what to do with it. And he went on to say, hey, I really needed you to, my friend, to know about you. Because when you come in here, you usually wear the shirt that says, this pastor loves you. And pastor is in uh, rainbow colors, right? And he said that uh, there are so many places and times when uh, we don't feel welcome that uh, we wanted to know that there's a place like that. And it messed with me for a little bit, for the rest of the day, actually. It messed with me because, what, um, first of all, stop looking at my shirt. But second of all, like, what, what is it about our society and the ways that we engage with one another and the ways that we interact with one another that forces us to take notice as if, right, the welcoming posture is the odd one, right? Like, that, that, as if that's what we should notice, right? What, what, what makes it about society? And so I want to just name here for, for our time together that you are welcome, that you belong, um, for exactly who you are, for all that you've experienced this week, for the joys and the, the lows and the highs and the moments of sadness and grief and anxiety and all of that. You are welcome, and we're glad you're here. You belong. And especially if you've been uh, pushed out or marginalized or, or kept out of places of worship, right, the place where all should be welcome, and we want you to know that you are welcome, that you belong. If you're gay or lesbian, transgender, bisexual, or questioning, just know that you're welcome. Know that you belong here. If you're black or brown or indigenous, if you've been discriminated against because of the color of your skin, just know that you're welcome. Know that you belong. If you find yourself homeless or houseless or in the lower economic brackets of our community, if you are single or divorced, partnered or separated, know that you are welcome. Know that you belong. And uh, with all of your unique gifts and abilities uh, created to be bearers of Christ's image to all the world, know that you are welcome. Know that you belong. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Holy One, be present here and in all the places from which we are worshiping. Move in us and through us that we too would be moved and changed. Speak to us, we pray. Less of me, more of you. None of me, all of you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. In July of 1971, uh, the public schools in Durham, North Carolina, uh, were still segregated. This was despite uh, the 1954 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that segregated schools were unconstitutional, and despite the federal legislation that was passed in the 1960s about the integration of public facilities. And because of this, there was high tension in the community. There were, there were fights happening across town, even in public places like the city council meetings. And so there's a man, a city council member, Bill Riddick. He, he called for a committee to address easing that tension, uh, specifically around desegregating public schools. Uh, the committee, they would meet for 10 full days from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., and whatever was chosen and decided on by that committee on school integration would become the binding decision of city council. And so a well-known and established community organizer and black civil rights activist, Anne Atwater, she was appointed to be the chair of that committee. 
and unhelpfully, uh, Claiborne P. Ellis, who was the exalted grand cyclops of the Duran Ku Klux Klan, was also appointed to be chair of that same committee. And they hated each other so, so much that they hated each other that Ellis is said to have brought with him to that first meeting a machine gun. Listen to what he said in a 1996 interview with NPR. He said, I did not like them, black folk. I didn't like integration. I didn't like the demonstrations downtown. I didn't like Anne boycotting stores. And she was making progress, so I hated her guts. And then Atwater countered, she said, I hated him just as hard as he hated me. And we showed that towards each other up until we went into that meeting. And as you can imagine, as they went on with their work, their, their hearts began to change. Uh, one day, they, they sat down with uh, black and white children from the public schools and, and heard their testimonies, who, who, who shared with them that they actually did want to go to school together. On another evening, a gospel choir was invited to come and perform for the committee, and uh, Atwater, she noticed Ellis <laughs> clapping on the wrong beat. And so she walked over to him and, and helped him clap uh, with the rest of the group. On another, uh, after a particularly long and grueling day of, of conversations, they, they, they found themselves in, in the office as the two co-chairs of this committee crying together because, quote, we were doing all the things all the wrong way. And on that final night of that 10-day meeting, Ellis stood before the crowd and ended up ripping his clan card in front of everyone. Because from that point forward, Atwater and Ellis, they would remain working together towards justice in communities and in schools. Ellis, he would go on to become a civil rights leader and a labor rights activist. Uh, he called Atwater a dear friend all the way up till his death in 2005. And for Atwater, she was invited to give the eulogy at his service, and she would call him brother. We're navigating the series called in throughout these past few weeks where we're exploring how we are called in how we are to call each other in but today i wonder if we can spend a few moments exploring what happens when we call each other in what is the outcome what should we expect when we call each other in perhaps when we do that work when we invite the other when we do the journeying with, as opposed to pushing away or alienating the other, we might experience transformation, the transformation that, that we and our world desperately need. We don't actually know much about the context of this letter, right? We think it was written probably in the latter part of the first century after Paul's death, but we're not sure, that's not clear. Uh, we know that there was a major earthquake in the region in the mid-60s and, and, and that there's no evidence or indication that the city was rebuilt or inhabited until much later. So, so this letter could have been written by Paul or it could have been written by one of his disciples. But either way, I want to go back to verse 2, which we didn't read this morning. But the letter begins like this. It says, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. And that phrase, in Christ, in Colossae, sets the tone for the rest of the letter. Here's why. Uh, two reasons. First, this in Colossae, we, we, we can identify 
throughout different parts of Scripture that the Colossian church met in the home of one Philemon. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because Philemon is the name also of a book in the Bible. Philemon was a man of wealth. He was living in a home with two other Christ followers, Aphia and Archippus. And he was also living in that same home with Onesimus. And Onesimus is the slave that ran away and is returned back to Philemon through Paul. So when we hear our text this morning, we have to hear it thinking about the intended audience in mind. So this is letter and all of Paul's instructions after it is not for some select person or some select group. What we find in our text are instructions and teachings for men and women, for slaves and masters. Paul's teachings drives through the layers of power that we've set up for ourselves and calls each of us in, and the question then is to what? And this is the second reason why this in Colossae is important. When we are confronted by the economic institution of slavery so blatantly as in our text, we have to remember that the Roman Empire serves as the constant backdrop of all that we're about to read. Remember, the, the, the Roman Empire was the colonizer, the one that, who held power over the region, creating policies and, and discriminatory practices that elevated the few and kept the rest marginalized and oppressed. There was greed for material wealth and the desire for power that governed the ruling class. And fewer and fewer people had access to the resources and the ability to live happy and healthy lives And the way that the empire maintained that grip on society, this this Pax Romana, it was to squash any sign of threat, of rebellion, any sign of life, of hope. So to be in Christ in Colossae was was not simply inviting into a feel-good community of friends and neighbors who meet once a week. Being in Christ in Colossae meant making a decision, making a declaration that one was for Christ and not for the empire. In Christ in Colossae. So in a society where there are images of Caesar everywhere, Paul writes of Jesus as the image of the invisible God. That's verse 15. And in a culture where there's a mythology in which the emperor is nothing less than a son of God by virtue of his lineage, Paul says, no, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That's also verse 15. And in a culture where the emperor's rule is embedded and leg- uh, legitimated and defunded by, uh, defended by socioeconomic and political and military structures, Paul has the audacity to proclaim that all things in heaven and on earth were created through him and for him, and specifically that all thrones and dominions, and rulers, and powers, all of those things are subject to Christ's rule. Verse 16. And because of Christ's resurrection, it will be Christ and not 
the emperor who will come to have first place in everything. And that's verse 18. So for these first uh, verses of our text, Paul lays out why it is that we are supposed to be against empire and for Christ. And therefore, when we get to verse 23, he says, I, Paul, became a minister, or other text says servant, a minister or servant to this gospel. I, Paul, became a minister or servant of this good news. I, Paul, became. Do you remember when we first meet Paul? Uh, He was Saul then, way back in in Acts. And he was Saul of Tarsus. He, He grew up a Jew in Gentile territory. He was brilliant. He took his faith very seriously. He went on to study under the most prominent Jewish scholars of the time, Gamaliel and others. And then he becomes a Pharisee. And he's tasked from keeping the institution from changing. And, and, and so when we first meet him, he, he's there in the crowd. We see him holding on to the cloaks of the men who are stoning Stephen for rape, believing in this new way. And he goes to destroy the church in Jerusalem by, by dragging this woman and men to jail for their faith in this new belief. And, and, and then we see him traveling to Damascus where the church is growing. He, he's going to do the same thing in Damascus, but it's on that road to Damascus where we see that transformation. Because there's a bright light and, and he's knocked off his horse. And and he hears this voice call out to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And rather than leaving him for dead or or cutting him off from community or, or anything else that God could have done to get God's own revenge, Saul is called in to relationship with other people of this way. Saul is invited to meet. He's introduced to others. He is transformed in this process. From Saul to Paul, From a denier and antagonizer of Christ followers to now an encourager and supporter and planter of Christian communities. From a tool of the empire to now a servant, a minister of this gospel. What would it look like? for us to become ministers, to become servants of this gospel? Might we be transformed? Might we experience our world transformed? You know, this week I was thinking a lot about um, the situation that's happening uh, in the news right now. Uh, Two busloads of migrants, right? Over 100 people from uh, Colombia and Cuba and Nicaragua and Panama uh, shipped to Washington, D.C., Uh, Roughly 50 Venezuelans who were flown from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. And while all of us might have varying opinions on immigration policies in the U.S. and potential solutions, I hope that we can all at least agree that using people as pawns in political games is unacceptable. But there they are, on this island, Martha's Vineyard, sheltered in an Episcopal church. And for 44 hours, the community cares for them 
before they go on their way. And a lot can be said about this situation, right? The politics, the, the immigration reform, the, the response from the people who live there, uh, who prepare the food and the cots and the, the friendship and the connection. But, but, but here's what strikes me. When the migrants were found more stable living conditions, and after they went on their way, and after all the tables were folded up and the cots put away, uh, the volunteers were asked to share about their experiences. And, and here's what they said. They said, I, I, we felt our hearts become more compassionate. They said, the migrants enriched us. In helping, we were transformed. What does it mean for us to be becoming Christ in the community? To be becoming servants or ministers of this good news? What would it look like for us to experience transformed people, transformed relationships, transformed conditions? I I imagine that it looks a lot like doing the hard work of calling each other in, of being called in ourselves. Thinking about what we might put as empire today. Is it money? Is it power? Is it white supremacy? Is it American nationalism? What must we reject and push aside so that we might become servants of this gospel. Teresa of Avila, she's a 16th century Spanish mystic. She wrote this. She said, Christ has now no body on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion is to look out to the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which God is to bless people now. Church, to be people of faith, it requires us to shift all that we know, to flip the ways of the world so that it is about this Christ and not about power and money and nationalism and race and supremacy. It's about how we are transformed to care for the least and the lost, to reach out across aisles and across streets and across railroad tracks. It is on us to call one another in. And so may we be that people. May we be people who are called to be becoming like Christ and all that means. And may we let go of the ways in which we've been conditioned to live. And may we instead become servants of that gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Holy One, we come before you reminded of the call to be the people you call us to be challenged by the call to be the people you call us to be. And so inspire in us hearts that would break for your people, that would break for your causes, that would be instead for justice and for hope and for peace and for love. Allow us to live faithfully into that call, for it is in your holy name that we pray. Amen. 
All right, so that was the third sermon of the series called In. Uh, so far, we've explored uh, what it means to be called into self-care, uh, what it means to be called into relationship. Uh, today, it was uh, called in for uh, transformation. Uh, next week, we'll close the series and talk about being called in to belonging. Um, and we're excited to to land uh, with that as we close out the series. I'm excited for uh, all that uh, is to come. And I'm excited for the impact that we'll all be making as we continue that hard work of uh, calling each other in, uh, being called in ourselves. I hope you have an amazing week. And I look forward to sharing with you again next week. We'll talk to you soon. <music>